On this week's edition of New York Now, New York's new gun laws take effect. We'll have details. Then we take you on a trip to the State Fair in Syracuse. And later, a conversation with State Education Commissioner Dr. Betty Rosa, plus a new edition of On the Bill. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. Like many others, it was a controversial week in New York as the state's new gun laws took effect. You'll remember that in June, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the state's laws on concealed carry. The court basically said the state's way of giving out those licenses was too subjective. And back in New York, Governor Kathy Hochul and the state legislature responded by passing a new concealed carry law. It designated certain sensitive locations where guns are not allowed and set stricter standards for concealed carry, like training requirements and a look at their social media. Those laws took effect on Thursday. Governor Kathy Hochul. We don't need guns on our streets. We don't need people carrying guns in our subways. We don't need people carrying guns in our schools. We don't need people carrying guns in our places of worship. We don't need them carrying them into guns, into bars or restaurants, because um, that only make people less safe. But the future of those laws is unclear. After a federal judge said this week they might be unconstitutional. Keisha Kluke from Bloomberg Government joins me now with more. Keisha, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So it's a 78-page decision, a lot to digest. The big headline out of it was, well, you tell me. <laughs> yeah, so basically, um, in this lawsuit, the, the judge decided to dismiss the case, but without prejudice, which means he basically, and in the decision, he basically says you can refile, and mm. you should refile, and he almost lays out in that 78 pages a blueprint for refiling. Um, so basically saying, like, your um, some of the issues he brought up was uh, the list of sensitive places, which is essentially everywhere, but as Kathy Hogel said, some streets. Um, so there's a lot of sensitive places. Um, and he basically said that the, um, the law needs to take place first before they can bring it up in court. Oh, I see. Okay, so it took a, the, the decision happened the day before the law took effect. Yes. So he was saying, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, that now they could possibly refile. And, and this is interesting to me because so the case is not dead at this point. So mm -hmm. what do they have to do? They literally just have to refile the lawsuit? So they can refile the lawsuit. And one of the big issues is they need to show hardship and show okay. that, for example, um, he's at, the person is at risk of being arrested for holding the gun um, or carrying the gun without a permit, um, that there's other issues with it. The Gun Owners of America um, New York group also needs to show that it's having some hardship with its members um, in order to do that. And so they can either appeal the decision um, or they can refile the decision. Um, the lawyers are still, it was quite a lengthy, like you said, 78 pages. So the lawyers are still going through it. Um, but one of the interesting repercussions of this is there's actually another lawsuit in the state um, filed by Carl Palladino in um, the Buffalo area hmm. about the concealed carry issue. So the question is, will the lawsuits take these lessons learned 
and then put them into effect in their lawsuits. Um, the state uh, Republican Party and conservative parties have also said they're going to sue. They have not sued yet, but perhaps they'll take some of these lessons learned as well. So did the judge say in the decision why he thought the laws were unconstitutional? Uh, that's the that's an interesting part of it to me, because presumably if they refile and they take the right steps, and if it goes to this same judge, then these laws are struck down. So what, what did mm -hmm. he say? So I think there were a lot of issues with it. Um, one, he took issue with a lot of the grammar of the law, which was kind of interesting, okay. noting. <laughs> a word, a word missing here, a comma missing here. Um, but he also um, had gone into, like I said, the list of sensitive places was not necessarily something that falls under the Second Amendment um, rights and the the right to defense. And um, for example, large uh, public gathering places. Not all of the places listed are public gathering places. Um, so that was in question. There was there was just a host of issues that he brought up that, um, for example, the, the state had this has to be in good standing and um, the person ha you know, is reasonably not going to hurt someone. And um, some of the language he said was a bit almost like wishy-washy and they didn't put the right stronger language in uh, to have this law stand as is, which I think lawmakers were unsure when they passed the package. They were kind of like, we're going off of what we think is okay based mm. on the Supreme Court um, ruling and, you know, shutting down the original law. And so we're going to try to put something in place. We know it's going to get challenged. Let's see what happens. So there could be some changes next legislative session in the law as well. Right. And it was a very quick turnaround for them. The decision came out, and I think it was within a week that they passed the law. We are uh, almost out of time. We have about 45 seconds left. You had a story this week on unemployment debt. The state mm -hmm. is not paying back, and now it is a burden on small businesses. Can you tell me how it's affecting them? Yes, definitely. So um, New York State owes seven point seven billion dollars in, in an unemployment loan from the government from COVID, which all states basically had. Um, but many of them use their COVID relief funding to pay that off so that the businesses um, don't have to have that burden. Typically in New York State, when there's unemployment debt, um, it's actually on the businesses as part of the system to pay that back. Now, because mm -hmm. the state hasn't paid it back, the interest is coming due next month. That's about $27.60 per employee that businesses are going to have to pay on top of all of the other additional oh costs. Oh, my goodness. That, it's, it's a lot. You know, for small businesses with, with multiple employees, I mean, they're not doing well now anyway. Mm -hmm. So we'll link to that story on our website. Keisha Kluke from Bloomberg Government, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, so we're going to take a break from politics, sort of, and head out to Syracuse. We're now in the home stretch for this year's New York State Fair, hosted in the small town of Gettys, just outside Syracuse. And it's been a really strange few years for the fair. In 2020, there was no fair at all because of the pandemic. And the fair came back last year, but attendance was pretty low compared to years past. So this year, we jumped in the car and took a trip out to the fairgrounds. And we're gonna bring you along for the ride. Take a look. It's not even 10 a.m. here in Gettys, New York, just outside of Syracuse, and already hundreds of New Yorkers and those from beyond have filed in here for a great day at the New York State Fair. We're gonna take you along with us for a day here at the fair. Let's go. First stop is the dairy building. A lot of people don't know it, but New York is one of the largest dairy producers in the country. And that milk is used for everything, from cheese to ice cream, and of course, butter. 
The butter sculpture that you see behind me is always a major attraction at the fair every year. And ours takes pounds and pounds of butter and molds it into something just beautiful. This year you can see the sculpture is dedicated to Title IX, which expanded opportunities for women and girls in sports. Take a look. Sue Baker comes to the state fair every year just for the butter sculpture. It's something that she says takes her back to her roots. I was raised on a dairy farm and the importance of milk and dairy products to me is number one. There have been a lot of butter sculptures over the years, but her favorite. Oh, it's so hard to choose, but I do love the one. There was a farm scene and it had the barn and all of that stuff. Yeah, that's that was one had the countryside and you know where cows come from. And that's just one part of the state's agriculture industry showcased at the fair. You'll also see buildings full of sleepy pigs, curious goats, and a lot more. Some are here for competition, others just for fun. And here we find rows and rows of hens, ducks, and roosters. <laughs> we could have spent all day with those animals, but for now we head to a new exhibit on energy and the environment. That's where visitors can learn about renewable energy and efforts to combat climate change in New York. And it's also where we find interim state fair director, Sean Hennessy. Yeah, so 2021 was a partial fair. Uh, 2020, there was no fair. So the fair is back and bigger and better than ever. Sean says that while the state fair has countless attractions for visitors, he also sees it as an escape from a world just ravaged by the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, people have been cloistered for a number of years here, and um, we want them to come together and feel they can be safe and enjoy themselves and come back to our communal kind of living that we did pre-pandemic. Okay, so tell me what your favorite part of the fair is between the food, the entertainment, the rides, everything. You know, I, I really think the people that work here is my favorite thing. You know, we're, uh, we've got about 175 uh, state employees that work at this facility. They really do deserve a real pat on the back for making this the historic event that it really is. Naturally, we wanted to see if others agreed. So what's your favorite part of the state fair? It was lunchtime for the chickens by then, so we decided it was for us too. And the fair did not disappoint. There's every fried food you can imagine here, like these fried Oreos. See how this fair worker makes them in a vat of hot oil and serves them up fresh all day long. And believe me when I tell you, they were good. Wow, it's different than I would expect. It's soft and not crunchy, but it's good. Yeah. But that wasn't quite enough for lunch. So we found ourselves at the Gianelli Sausage Booth, a fair staple with a history in politics. Okay, so the thing about a Gianelli sausage is that it's some sort of myth or something that if you're running for governor, you have to come to the state fair and you have to eat a Gianelli sausage to win your race for governor. So, I mean, besides that, it is really good. Photojournalist Thomas Connolly opted for the turkey leg, and then we were off for a press conference. It might seem unusual, but aside from attracting thousands of visitors each year, the State Fair is a popular destination for politicians. And Monday was Law Enforcement Day at the fair. That brought out people like New York Attorney General Letitia James, a Democrat. We honor them for all that they have done for us each and every day. 
And we pray that those officers who put on their badge each and every morning as they leave their families, that they come home to them at night. And also, Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, who joined a pilgrimage of lawmakers to the fair on Monday, hosted by Assembly Member Bill Magnarelli, a Democrat who represents this area. And if you hadn't already guessed, the fair is a pretty big deal around here. And so much more, says Magnarelli. People of Syracuse uh, look forward to the fair on a yearly basis. So it's not only the, economic, uh, the economics of the fair, which are great to the entire area. It's great for agriculture, and it's a fantastic outlet for uh, getting a lot of entertainment, great food, fun all the way around. His favorite part of the fair? The pizza frites, Magnarelli says. And for Senator John Mannion, who also represents this area, it's the chocolate milk. But he also has a personal connection to the fair that he's held since he was a kid. And that's kept the magic alive for him still to this day. It's, it's a sense of pride for us. I grew up just uh, about a mile from here and still live about a mile from here. So we love to joke about the things that are a little hokey or whatever, but everybody should come and see it because it's a great experience and it's great to see so many people here today because we're back at it. Uh, the great New York State Fair is certainly great this year. But with the sun beating down on us, we head back inside where we're greeted by somewhere familiar. So you might think by looking here that we're at the State Assembly in Albany, but in actuality, we are two hours away at the State Fair in Syracuse. This is just another way that elected officials like those in the Assembly and the Senate and the Executive Chamber try to connect with people while they're here at the fair. And while we hear a lot about the State Department of Agriculture at the fair, because that's really the prime focus of a lot of this work, the state also does a lot of work presenting state agencies in a way here that people can really understand what they do. Oftentimes when we think of state government, it's this giant bureaucracy. This is a way for the state to really reach people and understand what they're doing. Always sensing an opportunity, photojournalist Thomas took a pit stop at this point to pick up an easy pass. He's pretty happy about it but there's plenty more to do here if you want to escape the summer heat. For one, you can buy a lot of different stuff, if that's your thing, or you can just walk around and literally smell the flowers. But in a lot of ways, the fair is really a love letter to New York, a state home to countless industries that you might not expect, like honey. And according to this guy working the booth at the Empire State Honey Producers Association, there's plenty of buzz about it. Well, right now we have, we have two producers right here. One producer, Sonny, has 15,000 colonies he runs. But our sweet tooths are satisfied for the day. So we decide to make our final stop before we head back to Albany, the carnival. With more than four dozen rides to choose from, it can be overwhelming. Photojournalist Thomas decides he'll give it a try. I'm ready to ride the roller coaster. After fried Oreos, a Gianelli sausage, and a lot of lemonade, I wasn't so sure. Let's, uh, let's just hope I don't throw up. I'm all the way at the front. Wish me luck. Oh my god! Ah! Oh my god! Ah! Oh my god! Oh my god! the things we do for journalism. And I even conquered my fear of heights on one of the park's Ferris wheels to round out our day at the great New York State Fair. 
So between the food, the friends, the fun, the family, everything here at the New York State Fair, there is just something for everybody here in the small town of Gettys, right outside of Syracuse, New York. And the State Fair runs through Monday, if you want to make the trip out. But turning back now to the state capitol with a new edition of On the Bill, where we tell you about a bill out of Albany that you might not hear about otherwise. This week, we're talking about S7582 and reflecting on the anniversary of Hurricane Ida. It was one year ago this weekend that Ida hit New York, killing more than three dozen people in the tri-state area and leaving entire neighborhoods submerged. It was just a horrific event. People died trying to escape their basement apartments in Queens. Whole roads were washed away in Westchester, and those areas are still recovering today. That brings us to S7582. It's a bill that would require the State Building Codes Council to look at how the state's building codes could be changed to improve resiliency against flooding and sea level rise as storms get worse because of climate change. It was sponsored by Senator Shelley Mayer, whose district in Westchester was hit hard by Ida. This was an incredibly intense human impact. And what I tried to do is use that to think structurally, how can we improve the way we build so we can minimize the effect of flooding inland and along coasts? We're, we're going to have both things. And that bill actually passed the legislature this year with bipartisan support. Lawmakers are now waiting to see if Governor Kathy Hochul signs it. But moving on now to education. It's the start of a new school year in New York, and this one is different. You'll remember in 2020, schools went remote because of the pandemic. And last year, COVID was still very much a thing in schools, with students masked and distanced, with quarantine rules for exposure. But this year, that's all changed. New York has dropped most of its COVID rules in schools, while cases remain relatively low. So this week, we checked in with State Education Commissioner Dr. Betty Rosa on what that all means and what's ahead. Commissioner Rosa, thank you so much, as always, for being here. Thank you. Of course. So COVID has had, and I don't have to tell you this, but COVID has had a huge impact on schools for the past few years. This is gonna be the first school year in a few years where we have ended a lot of the COVID restrictions. How do you think that changes things in schools, both in terms of operation and in learning for kids? Well, I think that um, we have an opportunity to, and, and just to kind of uh, reflect on some of the things that have happened, we really had, uh, an incredible conversation with our, our stakeholders, superintendents, and um, many of our teachers about lessons learned and some of the things that we have to put in place in order to make the transition uh, back to uh, what I would call in-person full-time. And so that's what we have spent, uh, I would say, the last year looking at putting in place um, and addressing the specific issues that are critical, the academic, the social emotional, the issue of dealing with trauma. Um, what are the kinds of things that we do to create the human connection once again, and to transition our students uh, back to the enjoy of our school settings. Were these hard decisions to make? I, I imagine transitioning from full in-person learning 
to remote learning at the start of the pandemic was a very difficult decision. And then now we're going back the opposite direction, hoping to get all kids in school and things at least back to some sense of normal. Was that a hard decision to make or was it pretty easy? Oh no, this, as you know, children, uh, young people have been uh, in isolation, isolated, disconnected. Those are not easy uh, decisions to, not, not even just decisions, uh, acknowledging that it's going to take time. Um, even, even when we think about the mask issue, right? We have not seen the smile on our children's faces um, because of wearing the mask. Uh, so all of those are uh, transitions that we have to reconnect to and, and that our schools, uh, the joy of when kids see each other, right? Running up to each other and, and knowing that they have their own way of greeting each other and welcoming each other. So all of that has to um, become part of the, of, of the new fabric, which was obviously all of us know was part of the existing fabric. So the state is relaxing these restrictions because our COVID numbers are relatively low compared to where they were at the height of the pandemic and even just a few months ago. And during the pandemic, you know, learning changed for students as we're talking about quite a bit, especially in these lower grade school levels. It was really confusing for them to, uh, you know, learn in a way that they weren't used to. And school is already a new thing for them being at such a young age. How do you think that's impacted this generation of students and what can we do about it? Well, I think we, um, we're really actually looking at, within those lessons, as I said, we're looking at uh, what were some of the positives, right? Because everything, um, sometimes when you have to pivot and you have to move to a new way uh, of doing, not only uh, doing work, but responding to the necessities of the moment, that we learn new ways of doing things. One of the things that we want to emphasize are the lessons that we have learned that have uh, that we want to retain and we want to hold on to and want and we want to expand and that's important in in the new what I would call the new wave the new phase of education and for the little ones I think it's uh, trying to look at those transitions what, from elementary to middle to high school and certainly even to college. So we're, you know, we're looking at what are the kinds of things that we need to do to ensure that we continue to use the technology that we have had to pivot to as a, a tool to expand learning and to expand learning in ways that um, we had not utilized prior to the pandemic. Now, at the same time the state is facing a teacher shortage, I think actually think it might be a national problem. It's a real problem as you're transitioning from, uh, you know, the COVID restrictions back to where we are now. Do you think there's anything that can be done about that? What's the answer there? Is it something from your agency or is it something the legislature can do? How can we bring these teachers in? Well, I think the, the even prior to the pandemic, I think the pandemic in some ways, it was quite exhausting to many teachers who were the, you know, as we know, they were the educational first responders. So we have invested in programs like uh, teacher opportunity programs, right? Uh, teachers of tomorrow, trying to not only diversify our teacher pipeline, but also to ensure that we create a narrative and we create opportunities um, to really dialogue about 
um, what teaching involves and what an incredible uh, profession it is. And you know the department has been actively working with the Board of Regents to create a flexibility in terms of having individuals uh, enter the profession. But we've also talked about investing in recruiting, retaining, and uh, retooling. So those have been part of our conversations uh, to ensure that we support teachers, because it's not just about recruiting them, it's really also about retaining them and making sure that teachers reconnect uh, with the kinds of, of learning and the kinds of opportunities and tools that they need to do a high quality job. Now we're talking about investments. Do you think more money would help there? As you know, the state is investing an historic amount in public education. Would you like to see more money come from the governor and the legislature in next year's state budget to help with this problem or just to uh, help struggling districts overall? You know, we are investing a significant amount in education, but that doesn't mean that some schools may still be struggling. Well, obviously, our profession is such that it's so complex and there's and so many needs so that the while you know we all know that the federal government made an extreme significant investment and those dollars are being used that in fact we know uh, that we're going to need uh, additional dollars and and just to mention you know one of the things that the governor has asked us to do is um, engage in cross-agency work, right, with the Department of Mental Health, the Department of Labor in terms of looking at some of the skills that our students need to go back to in order to be ready for both college and career. And so those kinds of investments, uh, making sure that our dollars are not isolated, but rather um, creating a cross-purpose uh, full kind of approach to educating our children. Absolutely. Education is in a lot of ways about intersectionality for a lot of different populations. So I could see how that work would be really helpful. But we are out of time. State Education Commissioner, Dr. Betty Rosa, thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll keep an eye on things as the school year continues. Until then, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.